Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Laura and Gabe here. It's October 4th, and you're listening to Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week, it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For a discussion of all things queer, she chose the new HBO documentary series, Nuclear Family. For our conversation of all things sports, we're talking about a big day for NFL kickers. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we'll talk about the rainbow road to the WNBA championship. After that, we're going to share our interview with area athlete and personal trainer, Grace Thompson. First, an update on Team DC. On October 9th, we will celebrate the final Pride Night out of the year with the Washington Spirit. The game is at Audi Field at 7.30 with a pregame party at the Heineken Rooftop Bar at Audi Field starting at 6.30. Tickets can be purchased at teamdc.org. And join us at Dacha after the game for a post-game party and get a free beer when you show your game ticket at the bar. We are also selling raffle tickets for a chance to win a soccer ball autographed by the Spirit team. Raffle tickets are available at teamdc.rallyup.com backslash spirit. Proceeds will be donated to the Federal Triangle Soccer Club in support of their upcoming 11th annual Women's Indoor Cup, which is the largest indoor women's soccer tournament in the country. And Challenge Cup 3 has been tentatively scheduled as an in-person event Saturday, November 20th at Pitchers. We will be back with a fun-filled day of team competition in trivia, beer pong, darts, flip cup, and more. Start forming your team now and stay tuned for more details. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports. Laura and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all your favorite podcast apps, including Apple Podcast and Google Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe to Under the Bleachers for all of the latest news at the intersection of sports and queer. Now here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. Okay, my queer topic this week, we are talking about the new HBO documentary, Nuclear Family. Nuclear Family is a three-part documentary that explores the question, what makes a family a family? Director Rai Russo-Young uses her own family's story to explore these issues. Russo-Young was born in 1981 to a lesbian couple by way of a sperm donor. At the time, queer couples still faced significant prejudice and queer couples having children was unheard of. Russo Young and her older sister Cade enjoyed a wonderful childhood with their lesbian moms until 1991 when Tom Steele, Rye's sperm donor, sued her mother Robin for parental rights. 
Hill, a gay man and a lawyer for LGBTQ rights, agreed when he became the sperm donor that he would not be a part of the family, but then changed his mind. And despite being a lawyer for LGBTQ rights, Steele decided to use the homophobia, sexism, and heteronormative, quote, family values that predominated society at the time to try to upend the Russo-Young family. With marriage equality only a distant dream and lesbian couples having no legal rights, Steele was able to mount a strong custody battle, arguing that having a father was always in the best interest of a child. Nuclear family is powerful, interwoven with Russo Young at different times in front of and behind the camera as she interviews her family, her parents' friends, and even the lawyers who represented her sperm donor in the legal war he waged on their family. Episodes one and two are available now on HBO and the final installment will be out next week. Uh, Gabe, have you had a chance yet to watch Nuclear Family? I did. I watched episode one and I have a lot of questions. I know. <laughs> a lot of emotions. It was, it was, I mean, it was, I love that it kind of gave a flashback of what kind of gay life was, you know, pre-AIDS uh, epidemic in this, you know, 70s, kind of what's going on and just how can you kind of forget how things were. I mean, they talk about, you know, the, the kind of secret clubs in New York where people would, you know, still go in because they're a bash for just walking out. Yeah. Uh, walking like, around. And like they, this couple, when they wanted to get pregnant, right? Like lesbians were not allowed to get sperm from a sperm bank. So they had to go yep. find their own private agreement, like make a private agreement with some guy um, and then at home inseminate each other. Like it's fucking terrible when you think about and, like and, and from a pamphlet like people got together and said hey this is how we're gonna do it so let's let's hand draw these diagrams to show women how to inseminate themselves oh i mean it's crazy to just think about like what you know people had to go through and you know and they were living in new york city in the 80s and you know they were saying how it was pretty scary on the streets of New York City to walk around in the West Village or to like hold hands. Um, and so imagine, you know, I mean, that's New York City. What's the rest of the country? What was happening to people? You know, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, super scary. But I, um, so, yeah, I think it's such a great film, though. She did such a really good, compelling job of telling this story and making you, you know, really invested in what happens to this family. It's like, it's a really great film. Yeah, and it makes you think because there, there's a lot of couples like yeah, you don't you don't think about it like you're living in the time when you know gay couples and uh, lesbian couples couldn't get married. So why would we want to have kids? And some of like no, we want to have kids, but how do we do it? Let's you know, yeah find our own resources well, and, and figure it out. And this guy, right, Tom Steele, like you know, I want to have a little bit of empathy for him because you know he seems to like it seems like he really fell in love with his child and like you can't fault anybody for falling in love with a child and wanting to give love to a child but at the same time like how dare he try to insert himself into this family when he is a sperm donor right like you're not a parent of this child and it's just so nervy um, and of all people, he was like a fucking civil rights lawyer out there allegedly fighting for gay rights. And look at what he's trying to do to this what family. Because they were talking about like, yeah. okay, so when, so when Russo and Robin were trying to, you know, figure out what they were going to do and they were like, okay, we're going to look for sperm donors. And 
I mean, I guess, you know, they just agreed and said, hey, you know, hopefully, you know, we're choosing people from across the country that we're going to choose who we want and uh, kind of have that, I guess, agreement of saying, hey, you're not going to be part of this family. You can the, the kids can go visit you if they ever ask. But right. You know, well, that was the idea, right? It was supposed to yeah, be if was, our kids ask, we don't want to hide this from them. So we'd like you to be willing to be introduced to them so that they can have this question answered. But it was never contemplated that they would be family. Yeah, and then was, they voluntarily sort of formed a friendship and started letting him build a relationship with the girls, which I think probably to everyone seemed like a great idea. But, you know, he, he really just crossed the line from being a family friend to starting acting like a parent, which is just like completely inappropriate. Yeah, and especially, and I think he was influenced by his partner, that guy Milton, who had yeah. a son from a previous marriage or something like that, and kind of saw that relationship between his, you know, his partner and his partner's son. So I think he kind of had a little FOMO. Yeah, and I was no. Like, oh, hey, I, I got a I kid mean, across listen, the country. Yeah, but like I said, it's like you kind of, you know, you want to. I don't know. It's hard because I get it. Like to, on some level, he fell in love with this, these girls and one of them, it was biologically related to him. And so he felt this deeper connection and he wanted to stay a part of her life. The thing is though, is that those women, her mothers were perfectly happy to have him be a part of her, their life, you know, to have him be a part of her life. If he would just be a family friend. If he, but he tried to overreach and that's just so fucking terrible but it's you know it's really interesting like i i'm you know the um it's three episodes and i like can't wait for them to come out i like need to know more about this story and what really, happens yeah i was like i want to know what happened especially when they they brought up at the very end of the first episode um how you know they're going to court they're, they're going to family court he's suing and again, because, you know, they're not married and one of them is not legally a parent, she can't do anything. She can't say anything. Right. She can just, you know, stand on the sidelines. Yeah. And watch so what's going on with her family. Yeah. So Robin gave birth to Rye and Russo has no legal connection whatsoever to that child, despite the fact that she's her mother. And, you know, at the time that um, the sperm donor brought the lawsuit. I think they said Rye was about nine years old, nine or 10 years old. Yep. So, you know, her mother, Russo, has been raising her for 10 years and has absolutely no right to participate in a court battle over what's going to, who's going to be declared the parent of her child. It is insane. <laughs> you know, it, I, I can't even imagine the level of torment that that must have you know, wreaked on her because she is, she's completely powerless. Yeah, that's what, only 30 years ago? Like, <laughs> it's not that far away. <laughs> no, I mean, and you like, you just think about this and, you know, it really, there is this whole, like, there still are people in society who have this belief that biological ties between people are somehow more important than family relationships, which to me is bananas, right? Like the relationships that you build between parent and child, these bonds that you form and, you know, you care for a person, you feed them and clothe them and love them every day of their life. And somehow the fact that you don't share genetic material makes that less important. I, I, I don't get it. Right. Um, but it's very scary to think about, um, you know, how 
the impact on the kids. No, yeah, totally. Um, and I'm interested to see. I, I love that. Um, what's the director? Rai Russo. Yeah. Uh, gets also places herself in the story and kind of yeah. talks about what's going on. So I, I hope like she breaks up a little bit more about like, how did this impact you as a kid? Yeah, no, I mean, I can't imagine, although, you know, it's, it's interesting. So in the first episode, you saw a number of home videos that uh -huh. were from the time that her sperm donor was friendly with the family and they would like do family vacations together and he would come and visit and they made all these home videos. And it's very clear from those videos that she had a really nice relationship with him and was forming like a real attachment to him. So it must have like really upended her life to suddenly have him not only not be a part of her life anymore, but also him being attempting to rip apart her family. Yeah. But um, I read uh, an interview that she get, gave and she had said how she's had those videos like her whole life and she's never watched them until now. Like she pulled them out of the closet so that she and what started going through them when she decided she wanted to make this film. But so it sounds as if she's basically put him in a box and doesn't, you know, close the part of yeah, yeah. chapter. Yeah, which is kind of sad when you think about it, because you can tell from the videos that they had a special relationship, you know? Well, even how it affected people, because one of the attorneys uh, was talking about how they had to weigh, you know, should they do this or not? And should they sue, you know, this family? Uh, because I guess they all knew each other and they knew what was going on. And they were like, well, yeah, we, you know, we had to think about it, but we did it anyway. Yeah. So Russo, who is um, the other mother who doesn't have legal rights and isn't a party to the lawsuit, knew the lawyer who was suing her wife, you know, yep. and it's like, can you imagine? And, and, you know, that person said that they questioned the ethics and had a really tough time it, deciding. Yeah. And it's like, screw you, like world's tiniest violin. You had a hard time deciding whether <laughs> to sue me to try to rip apart my family. Yeah. What the hell? But, you know, it's interesting too. There was a friend that was featured in um, the film who oh, clearly, no, I mean, Yes, but she was the woman who was friends with um, the couple and with Tom, who like introduced them. And you could tell that she's tormented by the role she had in it as well. You know, that she like brought this together and then it all blew up this way and had such a negative impact on these kids. Like that's so difficult. But I get the impression that she's still very empathetic towards Tom's feelings on the matter. You know, so it'll be really interesting to see in the next couple of episodes when she interviews more of the people that were sort of on Tom's side, quote unquote, during the legal battle. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a really well-made film. I encourage everybody to watch it. Um, Gabe and I have both watched the first episode. The second episode will have come out um, this weekend. So when you hear this episode, it will have, the second episode will also be available. And then the following Sunday is when episode three is out. So Go watch Nuclear Family on HBO, HBO Max. It is streaming. Cool. So what's going on in sports this week? All right. Next up in sports, it was the week of the kicker in the NFL. In one of the early games last Sunday, Baltimore's kicker Justin Tucker drilled a 66-yard field goal to give the Ravens a 19-17 win over the Lions. The 66-yarder is now the longest field goal in NFL history, surpassing Matt Prater's 64-yarder from eight years ago. 
Prater also attempted to beat his own record with a 68-yard attempt that would have kept him ahead of Tucker in the record books. His missed attempt was returned 109 yards for a touchdown on the last play of the first half of that game. Three other games were decided on last-second field goals the same day, in addition to Tucker's record breaker in Week 3. Daniel Carlson, whose missed extra point allowed the Dolphins to send the game into overtime, won it with a 22-yarder as time expired to keep the Raiders unbeaten and tied with Denver atop the AFC West. Young Ho Koo's 40-yarder as the clock hit zero sent the Falcons past the winless Giants at MetLife Stadium. And the day the kickers ruled the NFL came to a close Sunday night when Mason Crosby's 51-yarder as time expired gave Green Bay a 30-28 win over the 49ers. Uh, so, Gabe, were you watching football this week? And what do you think are kickers going to rule the fantasy football league this season? <laughs> yeah, I did catch some of these games. Okay, that Tucker kick was insane. It was insane. also okay. So, there's a conspiracy going on with that kick because they were saying that time had expired before he kicked, and the the, the refs were just like, uh, "I didn't see anything. Did you see anything? Now we're good. Yay! It's good." Yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm aware of that. But whatever. I mean, honestly, he it <laughs> was, was like, yeah, it was like a kickoff. Like it was just it, <laughs> it was just like, OK, just kick that thing as fucking hard as you can and hope for the best. Um. So, yeah, I think the kickers are I mean, kickers are doing great, except uh, what's his name? Greg Zerline from Dallas. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah, it's 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 rough. I don't know. We you were know. There on Monday, we were watching the game. I was, I was watching the game with some friends. And it was kind of funny because uh, it's me and my friend Baco. We're both cat. We're, I, I'm becoming a Cowboys fan now. Um, <laughs> Got to go back to my Texas roots. They're playing against the Eagles. And uh, it was just funny to see this room of men just like screaming at the TV. <laughs> and we're screaming at the kicker. And then I'm finally looking at my like fantasy football, which the annexation of Puerto Rico. I had to change my name. <laughs> I'm now. Um, okay. So my friend uh, Megan, she's uh, fancy like Applebee's because of that commercial okay. so i'm i want my baby back baby back baby back ribs Billy mm. so versus applebee's we'll see who wins she's leading our our fantasy football and kicking ass because she's three and oh um we'll see what happens but uh everyone was joking around the beginning of the season saying oh don't care about the kickers because kickers suck you know pick that's the last one you pick on your you know fantasy football and it's like wait a minute yeah justin tucker got some points this week <laughs> Yeah, I'm checking my league stats right now. I am currently in third. So I'm excited. We'll see what happens. Who is the kicker on your fantasy team? Who's my kicker? I have two kickers because I got I got really nervous and I drafted two kickers on accident. Um everything about your fantasy football league is amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just hey, but you know, I'm still number three. I got a number C pick. I was the worst like draft of the night. And guess what? I'm number three. Uh Robbie Gold. From San Francisco. He's my kicker. All right. Well, keep an eye on the kickers, folks, because <laughs> it's shaping up to be an NFL season with a lot of last-minute field goals. Yeah, which makes it interesting. But, yeah, come on, Dallas. Get a better kicker. <laughs> Dallas, lose all the games. It's my favorite. They're still America's team. Ter seriously. It is the most obnoxious tagline in sports. Um, America's team. Yeah. <laughs> America this. Nobody wants anything to do with Cowboys. Um, Again, and their stadium is amazing and it's open so that God can watch his team. 
Oh, so it's God's team and America's team. Okay. Exactly. It's Texas. Well, Come on. A, yeah. <laughs> Texas isn't full of shit or anything, but whatever. <laughs> All right. So what's going on in the world of uh, queer sports? All right. My topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we're going to follow the rainbow paved road to the WNBA championship. The 2021 WNBA playoffs are underway, and amongst the eight teams in the playoffs, seven have openly queer players, and there are a total of 24 out LGBTQ plus athletes in the playoffs this year. The Phoenix Mercury knocked the Liberty out in the single elimination round one behind the leadership of Diana Taurasi, an out athlete and one of the greatest players in WNBA history, and Brittany Griner, another queer member of the Mercury who leads the league in block shots and is second in the league in scoring. The Liberty had their own queer athletes on the floor in Sammy Whitcomb and Natasha Howard. The defending champions, Seattle Storm, were then knocked out by the Mercury in the single elimination second round. They have three queer stars in Brianna Stewart, Sue Bird, and Hugh Lloyd. Phoenix now moves on to face the Las Vegas Aces. The Aces benefit from the leadership of veteran queer backcourt players Chelsea Gray and Raquina Williams. The Chicago Sky knocked the Dallas Wings out of contention in their single elimination round one. The Sky are led in part by the league's leader in assists, Courtney Vandersloot and her spouse, Allie Quigley. Chicago then went on to send home the Minnesota Lynx in a single elimination second round. The Lynx are led by a trio of queer guards in Leishia Clarendon, Crystal Dangerfield, and Ariel Powers. Chicago now faces the Connecticut Sun. The Connecticut Sun, who are on a 14-game winning streak, lead in the number of publicly out LGBTQ players in this postseason with six. Two of that six, Natisha Heidman and Jasmine Thomas, recently announced their engagement to each other. Veteran Dewana Bonner has her eye on a third WNBA championship ring, and MVP candidate Jonquel Jones is also one of Connecticut's out players. In summary, the WNBA is the gayest place on earth, and it is amazing <laughs> to see so much LGBTQ plus representation on the court for the playoffs. So Gabe, are you getting excited about the WNBA playoffs and all of these fabulous queer women? Yeah, I'm keeping up, and it's also like crazy to say like how many Olympians are playing. Like <laughs> they just awesome. got home from winning a gold. They just medal. got home, and now they're just like, okay, we're just gonna keep. Yeah, it's wild. These women are bosses. Um, <laughs> I was really sad. Like on the last day of the season, the Mystics lost to the yeah. Liberty and lost out on a playoff spot. Um, but the Mystics kind of were a little. Uh, ragged this year like they were really dragging to the end of the season it was a rough <laughs> year for them so it's probably good for them to get some rest um and it wouldn't have been super fun to have to um play phoenix in a single elimination first round anyway so all that is good but i think the WNBA playoffs are pretty cool this year i was pretty surprised to see seattle go down so quickly but these whole single elimination rounds of the playoffs is crazy to me. That's There's absolute, crazy. Yeah, basketball should never be single elimination. It's yeah, just yeah. like, you know, the game is too fast. There's too many points. You can, you know, it's just nuts. It's so I hate that they do that to the WNBA playoffs. And I really hope that they change that. Um, but I don't know. Are you, who are you rooting for anybody? I think I'm kind of rooting for Connecticut. I mean, everyone, I, I've been, and everyone's saying that Connecticut has the best chances of winning. 
Um, but you never know. Uh, but I mean, Connecticut, I mean, yeah, they've been pretty much badasses for yeah. years. I mean, I think Las Vegas, which has been really good, that they've been really good all year. I think they were like the second best team in the league this year, like also is still in it and has a good chance. Yeah, um, they're ranked currently number two. Yeah, but Connecticut is was playing like crazy. I mean, they won their last 14 games of the season in a row, which is, you know, pretty wild in basketball. So yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're red hot right now, as they as they say. <laughs> anyway, we talked a little bit about it last week, how um, there's a lot more representation for the queer community in women's sports. That continues to be true. It is absolutely true in the case of the WNBA. And so hooray for uh, the rainbow road to the WNBA championship. <laughs> Yeah, and it's exciting to see players that like, yeah, they're just just coming out. And they're like, yeah, we're here, we're queer, we're playing basketball. <laughs> these women are, yeah, these are real athletes. These are some beasts out there. Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share our interview with Grace Thompson. All right, welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Today, we are talking to D.C. area athlete Grace Thompson. Grace is an active athlete who regularly participates in running, triathlons, and many other sports. She is also a personal trainer, endurance coach, and wellness professional with over 10 years of experience. And she is the co-founder of Embody Pure Fitness, a personal training and wellness company. She has been a member of the Team DC board since 2014 and currently serves as the external relations chair. She also serves as Team DC's representative to the Federation of Gay Games and has served on the board of the FGG since 2019. Her current position with FGG is chair of the International Development Committee. Welcome, Grace. It is great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, and I am really looking forward to having this conversation with you all. Terrific. So let's talk for a little bit about your experience as a personal trainer. We know you've been a personal trainer for over 10 years, so tell us how you first got involved in that. I started actually really quite honestly. I had um, in about 20, uh, 2009, 2008, I had a bunch of friends that I used to teach with, uh, colleagues, and I was a runner and they actually asked me, hey, would you train us for our first 5K? And I was like, well, uh, sure, I can do that. I mean, uh, <laughs> I can tell you what I do. And that's sort of how the ball kind of got rolling in, you know, the proverbial sense. And it was just a really cool experience. I worked with these two ladies all the way up through their 15K, which is about nine miles. And then they completed the 10 miler with me, which was really cool, really empowering for them because they had never done anything, not even a 5K at that point. And so it was just a really awesome experience to watch that person transition from being like, I don't even think I can run a mile to doing 10 miles, which was, I was like, okay, this is yeah. somebody how to read and write better. Okay, great. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty great. And then did you have to go back to school um, to get special certifications? And, and what else did you decide to do at I that point? I did have to go back and get some specialty certifications. I also had to have a personal training cert, which is very different than a degree and it's separate. So just because you have a degree in say kinesiology or anatomy and physiology, does not mean necessarily that you are a certified personal trainer, right? And then there are secondary certs that I have as well, anything from functional movement system to TRX yeah. to kettlebell and these sorts of things. And 
All right, so you open Embody Pure Fitness. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy and how you take on personal training? Absolutely. So Embody's mission, which is I'll get into first and then we'll go into purpose a little bit, is to cultivate a confident community through a dynamic approach to health and fitness. And we don't just say fitness because it's really about your total health. It's your mind, it's your body, it's how you move, it's what you put in and what you're trying to get out of it, right? And that way. And that goes along with sort of um, both my personal philosophy, which was easier to come up ironically enough with and integrate that into sort of every aspect of what I do. It's to help people live and move better in the present here and now. And that's very much our purpose. It's a guiding principle for me every day when I get up, including organizations that I choose to partner with like Team DC. I look and see if that fits into what I wanna do as an individual. If it's helping somebody move better, right? Or getting that individual active in that way or helping them find a way to engage in a sport so that they have a sense of community in this moment, that's all I can really offer. I can't fix what happened in the past. I can't you know, project the future. But what I can offer you is a way to kind of get moving in the here and now. And that's our philosophy really at Embody. It's just kind of getting you moving, getting you connected to a dynamic community, right? And hopefully in that process, getting you involved in a daily movement practice so that it's habitual at this point, right? So I know I got to do this and this is going to make me feel better. And it's just what I do as a human being. So if somebody comes to you and says, you know, Grace, I haven't uh, ever exercised in my life or it's been a number of years, what are some small steps that you would advise them to just start adding a little bit of movement or a little bit of fitness into their everyday lives? And uh, absolutely. And that has actually happened more often than I can <laughs> honestly count. Um, and it's really, I start with how can we realistically look at adding basic movements to your day, creating a daily movement practice, right? So not just how many steps you get, right? That's important. But how many times are you getting up and down? How many times are you going to stand? Can we do some single leg standing while we're brushing our teeth? Is this something that we can kind of just stretch through even while we're sitting at our desk on the infinite number of Zoom calls or meetings that we have? So it's adding incremental, like incremental increases to what you already do and having that baseline in terms of, you know, maybe we walk up and down the flights of stairs in our apartment building or up and down the stairs in our home an additional two times per day. And we start there, right? It may even be as simple as, I need you to get up and down out of your chair five times every hour and a half, right? And it's really simple, so it's approachable and it can, it's individualized, right? So it's really hard to do broad brushstrokes, but it, whatever your ability is, right? starting there and adding just one degree better, one degree more, right? And that one degree more is trying to better than doing 10% and doing it for a short period of time and not being consistent and not having that self-regulation and sort of discipline to say, hey, look, this is what I can do. And this is what I can't with confine a constraints of work, you know, personal life. If you have family, that sort of obligation and you know all of these other social things that we have to keep up with, just focus on 1% more than what you're currently doing. And it's adding that little bit every day and it's creating that daily habit 
and movement, I say movement versus just walking, right? Because movement can be squatting, movement can be playing with the dog. You know, we have pandemic puppies, right? So taking the dog out, moving, throwing the ball. I mean, goodness gracious, they love to get on the ground and, you know, run about. So I think that these are things that you can do that are not gonna add a whole lot of stress to perhaps an already taxed system. Because a lot of people are mentally like tapped out. I cannot add any more. It's just a simple way to do that. Cool. That's something I think we definitely all need after, you know, a year and a half of COVID or almost two years of COVID. Um, yeah, just bringing in little movements here and there to help us throughout the day. Do you have any, um, I guess, any advice or do you have any, do you know of any like common mistakes that people normally do when they're like, I'm excited, I'm going to start something new. And then probably like me, I fail at working out again. You know, after I start something, I'm just like, I'm done. Uh, do you have any advice for any of those like me who uh, need to get back on the wagon and stick with it this time? I think it's about being honest with yourself, right? And saying, okay, this is a realistic expectation that I can hold for myself, right? And not holding me to my historical, like in the past, I used to be able to do this or at this time or for this many reps or this much weight. That's great. That's wonderful. You can write and leave that in your autobiography. It's wonderful, <laughs> you know, and great for you. But right now in this moment, I can commit to doing this much, right? And make it really, really realistic. Skin and bones, like if you set the goal here, say, okay, that's my optimal goal, but what is my actual, right? Because you have that projected and then you have your actual. Let's be honest with the actual, right? And take a look and say, okay, I have this much time in the day and these many things, this many activities are already allocated for, right? So what do I have to work with? Okay, is it 15 minutes? Great. In that 15 minute window, how can I be the most effective? And also having someone that's gonna hold you accountable to that, right? And a great way to do that, and I have a client who does this. If she does not work out on the given day that she has on her agenda, she's got three days a week that she has to be active for 30 minutes at that time frame, right? At that intensity level that we've already calculated out. If she does not, she gives five dollars to a charity she dislikes. Oh, like the oh. of her existence, right? <laughs> and she does a lot of work. She's a she's a lot of uh, NGO work in that sort of space. So when she doesn't work out, it's painful. And she doesn't. Well, that's creative, and I applaud that uh, that approach. Um, I hope though that it doesn't end up with too much money in the NRA's pocket or something. Uh, <laughs> and that's really it's a good way to keep yourself accountable, and it has to be a charity that you are like. I would never. I would rather eat sort of rock that proverbial in the proverbial sense, right? So making sure that that's your line, right? Like that is against the core of who I am, because if it goes against that. You're, you're really not going to stand up against that. Or having somebody who's a friend that's like, okay, look, I need to get myself out the house and walk, right? And I need it to be a good solid walk. And you and I are going to talk. And this is our catch up time. I'm here to do the walk. And we're going to catch up. We're going to chat. We're going to do the thing. And then, you know, go back in the house, right? So it's having someone who's going to call you and be like, are you outside walking? I don't hear any traffic or sirens if you're in this district, you know? <laughs> Well, there's um, a stick and a carrot, right? Like for some people, they need the carrot of the good time outside with their friends. Some people need the stick, which is the $15 to the NRA. 
but we think both <laughs> probably work or maybe some combination of the two will probably work for everyone. It really, it really does. And having those realistic goals is the other like tying sort of theme in that, keeping yeah. it realistic and keeping it honest. Yeah, no, that's um, great advice. It's very straightforward and it sounds very simple when you say it, but it's, you know, it's something that we all should practice a little bit uh, more and trying to um, live better lives all around. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your own personal experience as an athlete. So I know that you are an avid runner and that you like to compete in triathlons and other races. So let's start there. How did you get hooked on running? Have you been running your whole life? Were you a track star in high school? No, ironically enough, I did not. I did, uh, I actually swam for the first two years in high school and then lacrosse for two years. And then I started working um, when I was 15 years old and I sort of, and I was like, I prefer the job thing. Um, because, you know, having fundage for college is important in the, in my case, at least. So yeah. I did not actually run at all, except for like practice for lacrosse. Right. And that sort of thing we did, you know, occasionally like with swimming, doing some dry lands and that sort of thing, but not super often. I actually got into running in about 2006. And I started running a few 5Ks just to kind of put it out there. And I actually began running with the front runners, the decent front runners, in 2008 when I was getting ready for my first marathon. Okay. And since then, I've done nine marathons and two ultras, which are 50Ks. Um, looking forward to doing a third in September in Maine. So it's really running is something to me that's accessible and it doesn't have to be at a given pace. If you put one front in front of the other at a certain tempo, you are a runner. And it is true whether you are just getting off the couch and you're going to jog to the end of the street and that's 50 yards. Good on you. You're a runner now. Let's see if we can add 50 yards the next day, right? And it's just, to me, that's running is very approachable and it's something that you don't have to wear all the latest gadgets. You do all the, you know, I have my gear, I've got my tech, I've got my watch that's going to tell me my splits and da, 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 right? And I need to do track work and I need to do hill work. No, 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 no. Let's keep it simple here, right? Can we put one foot in front of the other and hopefully not trip? Really? That's it. Okay? <laughs> that's <laughs> fair. Very simple, you know? And then make it consistent, right? Because consistency is key. And then it becomes a habit, right? And it becomes part of you, right? Oh yeah, I'm a runner. And we can kind of broaden that definition because what I really love about running is depending upon what community and what race you're in, there's always somebody who this is their first time doing whatever distance it is. And that's really cool. Being able to connect with the community in that way, especially trail running. You've got these guys out here doing ultras and they're killing it, but they will still, if you're pacing them for a little bit, they will still talk to you. And that is phenomenal. And you've got people out there like the Marine Corps Marathon in 2019 was pouring rain at the beginning, like absolute buckets, right? It was terrible. It was miserable. It was like the day after my birthday. <laughs> it was god awful. But there were people out there soaking wet, cheering you on. And the sense of community and connection that you have with these individuals. And then you have service members out there that are wet. And they're out there, yeah, good job, keep going, right? And 
it's phenomenal in that respect, right? Because you have people that are cheering you on and they're out there for four or five hours and you're like, hey, nobody's paying you to do this. I paid to do this race, right? You didn't. <laughs> you're out there because you want to support and you want to encourage people. And that to me is really I, I so appreciate spectators and that um, the volunteers and the folks out there that are just giving you aid, right? That's what I enjoy about running. And that's what makes me such a proponent of it, right? I, I think, an advocate, excuse me, mm, wrong word, such an advocate for running because it is approachable and you can do that. And unlike triathlon and a lot of other sports, we got to find the pool, you got to get the bike, you got to do the thing, you put your shoes on that it's just really easy to kind of do, right? Just make it happen. And you can, there, it's free. Yep. So you mentioned the Marine Corps Marathon, which I know is really popular around here. Are there some other um, favorite races that you have run or that you're looking forward to run? I really have to say that I enjoyed the inaugural year of the 50K that's in Maguntacook which is uh, outside of Camden in Maine. It's quite hilly. It has about 8,200 feet of elevation gain. It's really quite beautiful. You're up in the mountains, but yet you can see the ocean. And that's, I think that's spectacular. In addition to the Marine Corps Marathon being my absolutely favorite marathon because of the environment and the people. I've run in Rehoboth. I've run in you know, Virginia Beach. I've run in um, West Virginia. I've run in Vermont. Vermont was lovely. The hills are terrible. Also, like a lot of the small races, like the DC Front Runners Pride Run. It's as a former race director for that race, it is fantastic. I remember the first year it started, the individuals that came in bringing in the rear, bringing up the rear, excuse me, were two uh, lesbians and they were under a parasol and they just walked the entire thing under the parasol. And it's a 5K and it was lovely. And they got more cheers than the person who won. I tell you that, <laughs> you know, I think that, that that's kind of what I enjoy about those kind of races. It's the community, it's the feel, it's getting people out there, right? And just having fun with it. And sometimes fun can be miserable, but you look back and being like, okay, that wasn't so bad, it wasn't terrible, I didn't die. Kind of those shirts, you know, that was horrible, but did you die? Did it kill you? No. But, it, but you may have crushed your spirit for a little bit, for a small fraction of time. But it but feels really good when you get to the end. Yes, it does. And also, um, you mentioned the front runners, and um, we've talked to the front runners on this podcast, actually. And the front runners are a great organization, um, an LGBTQ focused running organization. Do you think it's important that we continue to have LGBTQ specific sports organizations here in DC? I believe so. I feel that in addition to it being welcoming to our community, I have seen it be quite inclusive of the community as a whole. And there's a need to have spaces that are welcoming in name and in their charters because it's, it feels different when you're able to run with folks who understand some of what you've gone through and can create a safe and welcoming space, right? That's important, creating that space for someone to come in and say, hey, I've never felt really comfortable running. And the front runners have been doing this for 40 years, creating connections. And through that history, there have been some really big ups and downs, right? 
in the 80s and the 90s. But it connected people for life in many ways. And there are people who move and et cetera, but it gives you that sense of connection. And I'm certain, I know you both are rugby players, right? Finding, having teammates, right? That you can be like, it doesn't matter where they are in the world, you know, that that person is out there and that's your mate, right? And you can connect with them because that's what LGBTQ plus sports organizations do. They connect us as a community and it helps us fulfill that idea of family, right? And that connectiveness that there is something that even if we don't have family in the traditional sense, we have this connected or unspoken sort of family connection. Um, so again, besides running your own business, being an athlete, volunteering with Team DC, I know you do a lot of work with the Federation of Gay Games. So can you talk a little bit quickly about um, what is the Federation of Gay Games and how are you involved? Uh, the Federation of Gay Games is a global governing body for the quadrennial gay games, right? So the Federation of Gay Games is that governing body. And it happens every four years. And it offers a safe and welcoming environment for LGBT, LGBTQ plus individuals to participate in sport with their community. And it's absolutely creating that space. Generally, there is between, there's about 30 different sports offered and the next gay games will be in Hong Kong in 2022, assuming this pandemic ends at some point. Um, but that is what the FGG is. My role, and I just assumed this role in November of 2020, is the International Development Chair. My job is to create either content or outreach or formally during non-pandemic times, I would go and attend different sporting events or cultural events within uh, the, throughout the world and bring the message of the gay games and help support that organization, that local organization. Like that's what international development does. It's connecting people like, for me, it's creating content in Portuguese for folks in Brazil or content in Spanish to send out to clubs in um, either Mexico or Central America or other parts of South America. So that it's accessible and not just focused on folks who only speak English because we've got community out there everywhere. About how many countries um, tend to participate in the gay games? It varies based on where they're held. Um, in Cleveland, there were less uh, countries participating. However, in France, I want to say on the range between mid 30s to okay. 40. Cool. So it really does depend upon where they're held. Sure. But um, all different parts of the globe are represented. Yes, indeed. I can go on about the Federation of Gay Games, but if you have questions, it's just, you know, very simple gaygames.net. Fantastic. Um, well, I think we have taken up enough of your time, but I want to thank you very much for joining us. And before you go, why don't you tell everybody where they can go to find out more information about uh, Embody Pure Fitness, about gay games, about the front runners, about anything else that you want people to be able to go find out about. Okay, that's a lot. So I will do my best to keep all of these websites together. Uh, DC Front Runners, they have an Instagram page, as does the Federation of Gay Games as does the Gay Games Hong Kong 2022. Uh, for myself, um, embodypurefitness.com, um, also embodyfitdc on Instagram or embody underscore pure grace on Instagram. 
are areas where you can follow myself or Embody Pure Fitness. And um, also on Facebook, uh, Embody Pure Fitness is the, where you would look for us there. Um, so I think those are the main groups. There's also the Stonewall Climbing, if you're looking to get into climbing. Um, they also do indoor and outdoor climbing. The uh, Tryouts, which is the LGBTQ plus uh, triathlon organization and um, the DC Aquatics for swimming, if you're interested in that. Um, these are all just relatively, well, these are all LGBTQ plus friendly organizations. Great. And I know that you are hosting, is it weekly runs um, that yes, are open yes. to the community? Where are those? They are at the Archeric store. And that is an outdoor apparel store on 11th and H Street Northwest. So that's near Chinatown or a Metro Center if you're taking the train. All right, yep. well, that is a lot of information. I'm sure it's helpful to a lot of people. So thanks again for being here and we hope to talk to you again soon. I appreciate it and thank you all for your time and have a lovely uh, rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.